Welcome, it's another episode of The Plunge. I'm Dan Spaventa, your, well, I'd say I'm like the cheery host. I'm the jolly one, I'm the one who, you know, brings things up. And then uh, Sam here, he he takes it down real slow and low. (laughs) You, You think I'm the negative one here? That I always put a damper on everything? No, I think we're we're equals in that regard. <laughs> we both share in the misery. Yeah, and oh my, the misery of laying to rest uh, one of this nation's great fathers, <laughs> George Horny Wheelchair Bush. That's right, folks. I mean, the guy who birthed the the first president, I guess, that I was really aware of as like a more than a sentient person you know what i mean i was bush was like the first time that we learned about politics i guess and george hw bush was always this you know mysterious elderly figure and now he's in the spotlight well he is in the dark in a box so the spotlight has dimmed and now we just have to settle for jake tapper sharing cartoons of a geriatric George H.W. Bush just locking lips with Barbara at the gates of heaven. Yeah, that's that's been really gross. But, I mean, that's been kind of the average tone for the hagiographical hey, coverage of George H.W. Bush recently. Just laudatory praise. I mean, you know, he's an ex-president, but... It's funny when you think about people who say that we're great because we have a free press or something. It's like, no, we have we have multiple forms of state media here. Yeah, it is exactly how the state media would cover a deceased leader by simply just rolling out the celebratory reels and not questioning just anything just this blanket like oh he was this beacon of heroism and civility and he was he like they he was in the military (laughs) and like i think they kept making trying to make a big deal that he was the last serviceman to be president well dan i think it's a little too soon for you to be criticizing him you know Uh, he just a man is dead here just because you're gonna what I guess, think about how he was, you know, complicit in Iran-Contra and sanctions on Iraq and just bombing the absolute shit out of Iraq, like, once every few days. Hang on. Are you going to ignore the fact that poor mid-70-year-old George W. Bush is now an orphan (laughs) simply because his father told gay people dying of AIDS to stop being so promiscuous and maybe they wouldn't die of AIDS and he slowed their ability to cure the disease. I mean, I think you hit it on the head. George W. Bush is the real victim here. I love how we've come so far that the news on George H.W. Bush, one of the things that people have been talking about is George W. Bush's speech. Can you imagine talking to someone in like 2004 and telling them, yeah, in 14 years, people are going to be like lauding George W. Bush for his oratory abilities? (laughs) I mean, his whole brand was like 
you know, the atrocious, like, Bushism calendars. Jesus Christ. I mean, I actually went, I on my lunch break the other day, I jogged down to Constitution Ave to see the damn hearse pass by. And I did see the hearse pass by. I mean, it's anyone's guess as to whether George H.W. Bush was within the hearse, but I think it's okay to assume that. Hey, you don't know. Maybe these are the type of elites that, like, have sex with the skull and, you know. Well, I mean, basically that's what they're doing. He's, he has to have, like, nine funerals. He's been, like, flying in between, you know, what? He went to, like, the joint airbase, back to the Capitol, then back to joint airbase, Andrews, flying to, like, Houston now. It's the same thing with, like, McCain, where they had, like, 12, just this endless procession of funer- funereal rites. Yeah, and just consistent content from CNN and other major news networks about like the body is now en route out of Washington for one final time. (laughs) I know everyone's so dramatic with this. They act as if like some historical relic is like being shown. Was he like 94 or something? I mean, he is, but you know, I've been working on this running theory that Washington DC is basically like Pyongyang in terms of the level of like bizarre fetishist nationalism and just like the itemization of these like societal values to the point that I mean even I as a cynical asshole like jogged down I was like I gotta see the hearse because it's literally a dead president and I've been told my whole life that the presidency is like this huge you know momentous thing and honestly like it it was very underwhelming (laughs) like seeing it in person well, consider how you felt seeing that, and think about how Jeb found out, uh, according to the New York Post, Jeb Bush missed the call about his dad's death because he was asleep. Oh, <laughs> that's kind of cute, though. He, you know, he goes to bed at, like, probably 10 p.m. every night. Jeb, interestingly enough, was asleep and turns off all his equipment at night so we couldn't reach him, Neil Bush said of his brother Jeb. Uh, Jeb woke up at four in the morning and turned on the TV and found out that his dad had passed away. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, who turns on the TV at four? You know, I think it's a a South slash Texas thing to just leave the TV on like as long as you're conscious. I mean, I had friends that didn't even turn when I went to college in new Orleans. I mean, I had friends who didn't turn the TV off at all. Like it was just constantly on, even when they were like sleeping and shit. (laughs) It might be a cultural difference that you're not aware of. Clearly. Well, I think the, cultural impact of George H.W. Bush actually can be felt most in Japan, where he birthed a new phrase. Now, Sam, are you aware that the phrase uh, in 1992 officially entered the Japanese lexicon, and this phrase was Bushu Suru, or do the Bush thing, and what that uh, meant in Japan was to vomit everywhere. Because President Bush, in early 1992, right before he had uh, gone back on the campaign trail, he took a break uh, in the new year to go to Japan, and after a long day of playing tennis, 
he puked all over the Japanese prime minister, Kichi Miyazawa. He just wasn't aware of the cultural difference. In Japan, they don't like it when you throw up on them. And funny enough, Barbara stayed after they got, you know, Bush 41, you know, up. And apparently they revived him when his personal physician loosened his tie and unzipped his trousers. He was just sucking in that gut too much, man. That's a real American thing to do. I I, I think that's a proud H.W. Bush moment. And, uh, you know, what is vomiting on the prime minister, but you know, just the just retribution for Pearl Harbor. Oh, makes sense to me. He's always bombing other countries. He might as well bomb, you know, a foreign dignitary's lap with his own vomit. It's the, it's the American thing to do. Yeah, and I guess we can just clarify for two seconds. It's not cute that Bush, uh, W. Bush, uh, gave Michelle Obama candy again. Clearly, oh my God, if you think that is like spontaneous, like you are a dullard. Yeah, th- there's always after these public events this absurd rush to kind of interpret the body language of everyone who attended. I mean, like that video where Trump shakes like Obama's hand and Michelle's hand, but Hillary Clinton and Bill Clinton can't be bothered to shake his hand. And I think kind of like what we said about the pod save america people like the people who watch that show they think of politics as more of like just a series of clapbacks and like witticisms or repartee rather than like you know something that actually occurs in the real world i I don't know yeah and i saw someone tweet this and it really resonated with kind of this thought i've had swirling in my head recently and uh, i forgot who said it but they said People, you know, you can have your whatever you think about Bernie, but people who like Bernie generally like him because of his policies, not because of his like woke theatrics. Like, right. <laughs> or just he doesn't really have this cult of personality because he's like an he's a you know to the extent that he does it's because he's an adorable old jewish man he's not like you know he's not like stalin or something but of course liberals see him that way but you know liberals don't have that good of a grasp of stalinism they also would probably compare donald trump to stalin and Donald Trump did something that's very non-Stalin-esque recently in that he tweeted this absurd image that it was like, I don't know, this should have been shared on like some, you know, we love Trump, like boomers only Facebook group. Right, it it has the graphic, like, flair of, I I mean, okay, it's literally, it looks like it was made on like a meme generator. It looks like you just learned how to make a meme for the first time and you're making one. And it says, just in huge front, like 50% approval rating. <laughs> and he tweeted this out. <laughs> like, that's a, that's an accomplishment for him. He, he's like, look how high it is. There's no way. That, like, what, what 50%? 50% of what? I think the, oh, I, I read a Washington Post article that fact-checked it, and they were like, actually, it's more like 39 to 43%. But, I mean, there is like a weird grain of truth here that, that Donald Trump has an overwhelmingly large support in the Republican Party as far as, like, you know, Republicans may not support their president, but with Trump, they support him more than they even supported, like, George W. Bush. 
And the Republican base doesn't give a shit about these other Republicans in general. They are totally, like, it's Trump's party now. Yeah, their their whole thing is this QAnon nonsense about how Trump is actually trying to like destroy many members of the Republican Party. But I love this image. You know, it's great to have at least the comic relief of our old grandpa president, who is a you know a ruthless human being and is not funny. But uh, there's there's got to be just some absurd humor here. <laughs> well, you bring up the QAnon people and this. Uh, thing that Will Summer tweeted about, Sam, you really should have been at this event because this um, American Priority Conference, <laughs> which according to Will Summer, who you should read his stuff at the Daily Beast and subscribe to his Wright Richter email newsletter. It's so good every week. It rules. He tweeted, the stars of the fringe right wing internet are gathering in D.C. today at the American Priority Conference, a sort of CPAC for people who couldn't get on a panel at CPAC. (laughs) And then he uh, comments that the free speech crowd refused to give him a press pass. Right. Well, they know what he's going to say about them, and he's very good at reporting them, but it also doesn't look like there were very many people at this. Right. He later managed to get photos <laughs> of Laura Loomer speaking to a nearly empty room in D.C. Laura Loomer, of course, is this absurd conservative you know, internet personality who recently was, what, suspended from Twitter, so she chained herself to, or handcuffed herself to the doors of one, t- Twitter's HQ in well, New York no, no. City. Well, no, no, it was the old office for Vine. No. Twitter's HQ is <laughs> dozens of blocks away. <laughs> it's even more bizarre, but apparently she only lasted two hours chained out there. Fuck white people! Goddamn white people are the worst. Kill all white people. I'm not anti-Semite, I'm anti-Termite. This is all still on Twitter. All of these tweets right here are still on Twitter. I wanna shoot Trump in the head. Fuck white people. All white people are racist. God, can someone just shoot Trump already? I mean, why is this allowed on Twitter, Jack Dorsey? I want to know how that is hate, how that's not hate speech. But my tweet up there, isn't it ironic how the Twitter moments used to celebrate women, LGBTQ, and minorities is a picture of Ilhan Omar. And I had a sign, I had a sign here that I wanted to show you guys, but Twitter confiscated it. So already here in America, You know, I have a right to protest. I have a right to peacefully protest here. And I can't I can't even protest because even on the outside, Jack Dorsey is sending his goons to confiscate my sign. I want to know why Jew hatred is okay at Twitter, where Louis Farrakhan can essentially call for the extermination of Jews, just like Hitler did. There were some insane moments like when she had handwritten tweets and put them up next to her. And then I guess an officer was taking them down and she was like, you're literally taking my tweets down or something because they were like physically written on pieces of what cardboard next to her or something. Yeah. And just like New Yorkers walking by saying like, shut the fuck up. And she's just like (laughs) wailing about like Louis Farrakhan. (laughs) 
I was going to say that that would have gone over a lot better in San Francisco than in New York City, because in San Francisco, people are nice. In New York, people are like, you're like the ninth person on my commute who's been doing some absolutely bizarre shit involving handcuffs. All right. uh, Another story we wanted to talk about is one that I didn't read, but I have just opened. And the first thing I am looking at is Steve Bannon's just bulging stomach (laughs) yeah his stomach beneath the customary like four shirts with the collars (laughs) that he's wearing at all times oh my yeah i see at least three shirts yeah and then like uh, uh, maybe there's like a tie on one of the lower layers of shirts is it an ascot there's there might be an ascot in there Uh, he's He's bizarre looking. We've obviously covered Steve Bannon in our in our fucking first episode and his mediocre career as a right wing documentarian and agitator. But Steve Bannon never sleeps. He's always just doing weird basement stuff. And his new weird basement thing is uh, hanging out with Guo Wenguei, who is this like Chinese dissident billionaire who claims to have a lot of dirt on the communist party of China, which obviously is, you know, very integrated into the business community over there. And this guy has made a lot of wild claims, some of which have proved to be true. Some of his more like practical ones, but a lot of them seem to be way off the mark. I wanted to know, is there a comparable American to, Wen, how do you pronounce it? Guo Wenguei. Yeah, Wenguei. <laughs> He's sort of like if the Bundys were like billionaire industrialists, maybe. <laughs> the Bundys, as in uh, Clive and Bundy and Ammon Bundy, who were the ranchers who basically to stand off against the government over their cows grazing federal land for free. <laughs> Right, they literally just wanted to like loaf off of the government's largesse and uh, not pay taxes, which is the real like libertarian dream. But I don't know. Another analog that I think is a little easy and like cheap to make is Guo, Guo Wenguei is kind of like Donald Trump in a weird way, in that he is sort of sees himself as the enemy of the government. But um, I mean, Trump Guo Wenguei is a wanted is wanted by Interpol like he was cast out of China by their community because they don't they don't play over there if you're a billionaire not playing by the rules um and he's kind of teamed up with Bannon to with just form the weirdest fucking collection of like Harvard economists <laughs> hedge fund managers and just general like anti-China hacks which I think we've discussed before the kind of like hacky like western takes on China people mainly criticize China for running its economy in a way that makes it hard for the U.S. to compete. And there's a lot of, like, American exceptionalism that goes into this kind of coverage of China, I think. It's the real suicide squad. (laughs) Yeah, this team is so fucking funny. So they want to create, like, a massive fund to short sell the Chinese currency and, like, ruin the Communist Party of China. And, like, I mean, it kind of is... It seems so fucking bizarre because Steve Bannon is involved in this, you know, dude, Guo Wenguei. But at the end of the day, this is also kind of what, like, Bill Crystal and, like, American neocons want, which is why it's so... I think the anti-China rhetoric, obviously coming from Trump, is, you know, bad and chaotic. But just everyone like there's a kind of a it seems weird this like suicide squad of anti-china you know people who are willing to hang out with steve bannon but this is not really a fringe idea i mean regime change is the goal of everyone from like 
you know, human rights watch, like liberals to these kind of wacko, you know, Steve Bannon, like I'm bringing the Judeo-Christian society back to its former greatness kind of types. God, so how far do you think they've gotten in this pursuit? I don't know. Time will have to tell. Obviously, they're kind of doing a lot of this in secret from like Guo Wengui's just multi-million dollar fucking apartment overlooking Central Park. Um, I don't know. It's just a bizarre collection of people. I think it's so funny how the right wing has, I mean, as it's asserted its dominance over our government, it's also found ways to innovate in terms of its fringe. (laughs) And uh, that story will be in the show notes if you want to see Steve Bannon's eight-shirted stomach. Yes. Also, another detail from this that I forgot to mention is that Steve Bannon apparently like has ties to China in that he used to operate an online gaming company in Shanghai. So he's a gamer, folks. Not shocking at all. I mean, that's the most basement thing you can do. Yeah. All right. We're going to quickly go over this viral tweet that this woman on Twitter, uh, MySerenity69 says uh 2020 presidential possibilities so who's your top three picks i've already removed bernie not a democrat not a choice no freaking bernie and she shared a screenshot from cable news with a bunch of headshots of potential candidates (laughs) so obviously she crossed off bernie but i think we should go down the list minus Bernie and give a, a couple pros and cons of the some of the front runners of the Democrats. You know, the the people who, as we said, are trying to deliver us from this right wing hell that we're all in. Joe Biden, uh, neoliberal icon, really. I, I don't think it's appreciated enough how much the Biden sort of politics have really shaped this hell world we live in now he's old enough to have been racist in the 70s and been a third way democrat you know tough on crime in the 90s like he's been around obviously he uh we discussed a couple weeks ago how he was brutal to anita hill during the hearings uh he is a bit of a creep in general. I don't know. I, I, he's handsy. I, I, I don't think he's the uh, person for the moment. In addition, the people who whine about Bernie's age forget that Biden's a year younger than him. Yeah, and also not nearly as lucid as Bernie. I'm sorry. Like, but Biden seems a little, a little roasted in the brain. All right. What about Booker? Cory Booker from my hometown of Harrington Park, New Jersey. One of Cory Booker's pros is that he used to be good at online, like, years ago. Now he's Yeah, really... he was an early, you know, when I first got on Twitter, like, he, I followed him because I knew who he was because of, um, you know, where I grew up. Um, and that's so weird. Wow, so long ago. That's really before I knew anything. Right, but he used to be pretty good at online. He'd lost the skill somehow. Um, my problem with Cory Booker is that he sounds like a teenager using his dad's credit card in a store perpetually. Like He has like a very earnest voice. He always seems like he's trying very hard. And that kind of, you know, 
is a cover for the fact that he gets a ton of money from like the pharmaceutical companies in New Jersey. He has really one of the worst, I think, like list of don corporate donors of anyone on uh, this short list of like 2020 presidential candidates. He's pretty pro Israel too, right? Oh, that's all these people. That's not yeah. even an option. <laughs> all right. <laughs> I mean, yeah. <laughs> all right. So, Dan, what can you tell me about your boy Beto O'Rourke? I mean, look, uh, David Sirota, he's a pretty prominent lefty writer this week, got shit on by all the libs for pointing out that Beto got more oil and gas uh, contributions than pretty much anybody in Congress. And granted, it was from employees, but I mean, the employees of oil companies who have enough money to donate are not like your average, like rank and file pencil pushers. You know, they're people who are higher up. They're like executives. And Beto in general is this, you know, and I think it was Dan Pfeiffer of Pod Save America. Christ. Basically like spilled the beans and was like. God, he's just like Obama, but he's white. <laughs> I don't think that was Dan Pfeiffer. He was quoting. Oh, that was a political article that quoted someone, like a Democratic donor, as saying that. But that's the real. That's the real reason they like Beto O'Rourke. Apparently, is because like he raised a ton of money out of nowhere, and people he he motivates more than anyone the donor class. He don't motivates the people who are going to give money, and he. It, the people like Neera Tandon who are all just desperate to have him be the new face of the Democratic Party. It's kind of fucked up. I mean, it's just because he can raise more money. Oh, and I want to comment that both he and the next person we'll talk about, Kamala Harris, are completely aping Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez's uh, engagement strategy by posting instagram videos of them cooking because right. that's what she was doing and their shit just looks so fake if you want I, I i i checked on all of the um beto and kamala harris's instagrams and it was just like oh my god clearly this was like um what's the word focus grouped absolutely and whereas o ocasio cortez is just like talking I, I don't know she's just way more authentic uh and clearly like these people are just trying to copy her yeah Beto's definitely in the kind of like john ossoff vein of like he's a bland inoffensive white guy who seems like earnest and i mean people are going nuts for this guy he's kind of a, a dick he did pr recently primary like an actual left-wing candidate uh like Mexican younger woman who was running as kind of like a Bernie Krat. And uh, he was just, there was a great current affairs article that had some of the exchanges between them. And it was just clear that he didn't think that she, he's like, I'm fighting for you. So you shouldn't do it. Like you, I'm fighting for your, you know, Mexican community in Texas. So you as a Mexican woman have nothing to do with what I'm doing. It's very top down and obviously kind of insincere. Yeah, we're we're not big Beto heads. Sorry, uh, our ankles are not cramping for Beto. Um, <laughs> so Kamala Harris, uh, briefly. I mean, she has a pretty harsh, like uh, prosecutorial background uh, through a lot of. I, I don't know. Through a lot of people in jail for drug crimes i she also i mean 
she has plenty of like things that she did that were kind of good as a prosecutor. She did, I mean, she did stick pretty firmly to her initial stance against the death penalty and people like Dianne Feinstein and the kind of like democratic establishment in California were pretty ruthless towards her for it. So I'll give her a little bit of credit, but you know, any prosecutor is going to have some shit on their records and people they let slide or people they prosecuted too heavily. And at the end of the day, she is, you know, a cop. Yeah. And we've heard her say basically that, ice is uh necessary so i don't yeah. know not not quite the person i want to lead a left coalition and also when she says something like that she like you know maybe i'm stepping out of my lane here as like a white guy but she is kind of it's people aren't going to take it the same way from her because she you know talks about her immigrant you know family members and the assumption is that because she has those family members she'll be somehow you know inherently better on these issues than someone else like some white guy even though everyone's boning for beto right now but at the end of the day, I, I think this is a fallacy, and I don't think that you can just assume she's going to be... You, you should take her on her word, not on what she is. She has said, I will keep ICE intact. You can say, like, oh, she's you know secretly wants to abolish her or whatever, but it doesn't mean anything. You know, you can't just assume these things about her based on her identity. And we've talked about Elizabeth Warren's uh, debacle. I don't know what what do you what do you make of Elizabeth Warren at this point? Yeah, well, Elizabeth Warren is like I will give her credit. She's probably like the smartest person on this list. Yeah, and like look, uh, I I think she has more genuine uh, credentials than a lot of these other people. I don't know. It'd be kind of hard to overcome uh, the fact that she clearly doesn't know how to go toe to toe with Donald Trump at this point. Hi, this is Elizabeth Warren. Is Dr. Bustamante in, please? Hi, I'm Carlos Bustamante, and I've advised companies in the direct-to-consumer space, including Ancestry.com, 23andMe, and Helix. In the senator's genome, we did find five segments of Native American ancestry with very high confidence, where we believe the error rate is less than one in a thousand. We will very gently take that kit, and we will slowly toss it. Right. I mean, that's something we came to in our show previously, and... My take on it was, like, she was probably, besides, like, Bernie Sanders or someone else, like, one of the furthest left voices we had in the Senate. The Consumer Financial Protection Bureau is, like, a actually good thing, and that's why Trump and, you know, Mick Mulvaney and this, what, this new lady who is was just confirmed today, but is, like, a total dunce and has never worked in any kind of consumer, like, field as far as, like, finance goes. Uh, either way... All of these things kind of fall apart when you see how she just fell up. You know, she completely fucked up with Donald Trump's calling her Pocahontas or, you know, ribbing her about her statements about her Native American heritage. Like she doubled down on it in the worst way possible and reintroduced the concept of blood quantum to our daily discourse. I mean, it's just I can't see her like doing well in a campaign, even though I think her policies are pretty good. Yeah, I that that that's really more the problem at this point. Uh, well, Eric Holder, uh, <laughs> I, I guess he 
what can you say about him? I, I just remember my main reference uh, point for him uh, from like recent times is in July, which because I just looked up when I tweeted something about it. Um, he went on Stephen Colbert's show and said that he basically supported enhanced interrogation, like <laughs> torture shit, like Gina Haspel who's running the CIA like he was said that he was like totally supported torture and then Steven's audience like just howled with like applause when he said he was considering <laughs> running in 2020 which like is so irritating to me because it's like why are you applauding j- this man who has if you were any kind of like lib just proclaimed support for something that you should be opposed to like fundamentally like with every i i I don't understand how someone like him is being floated right now it's sort of like what i said about george w bush all of a sudden people are like clapping for him and lauding his like oratory skills i mean like you said with this eric holder appearance they literally just stood on their feet and clapped for what we were all pissed off that Bush did, you know, 10 years ago, like 10, 15 years ago. I, it's so crazy how people have forgotten or just become accustomed to how fucked up and right wing our politics are. And I don't know, at the end of the day, Eric Holder definitely like when he was the head of the Justice Department towards the end of the Obama years, he was doing good work, you know, trying to investigate like police brutality and have some oversight over these disgusting like municipal police forces that were just murdering black people but i mean he also then left and became and had a massive like re-entry into like the world of corporate law with a multi-million dollar signing package and whatever so he's not to be trusted he's sort of like kamal harris where like these people who came up in the legal field are going to have about as much if they do anything good it's because they did a ton of other bad shit well not to mention these obama people just lap up everything silicon valley has to like throw at them so it's just not the kind of person you should want unless you're like one of these like zuckerberg should run people yeah i don't know it's the most top-down creepy shit it's sort of like this article you shared with what people saying that we need to treat our lives more like startups. Yeah. I, I just, I, I felt like we had to pull a few lines on the show. Um, so this is an article in quartz. Uh, if your personal life has ceased to inspire you, try treating it like a startup. So Sam, when you think of like startups, like, what do you think of? Because when I think of startups, I think of how like ninety nine percent of them fail within a year and die. Well, you know, I you know like a startup. I have a terrible record on sexual harassment. Uh, I'm funded by multiple venture capitalists. My central goal is to create something fundamentally useless, like an app that buys you cookies from a vending machine or something you know this is it's just very relatable to me as i am actually kind of a startup once we are in a relationship much like a steady job the temptation is to stop thinking about why we do what we do that's why uh perel 
who's Esther Perel, she's a psychotherapist, advises that the kinds of modern company structures which make work a knife edge of possible gain or loss held together by belief, effort, and creative thinking are a better model for our love lives than the staid careers of an earlier moment in history. So, okay. (laughs) If you treat your love life like this job that you never, like, that has barely a chance of success that requires nothing but sacrifice without, like, I mean, like, no, uh, startups don't profit for years. Uber in nine years has never made a profit. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Sam, please go off. I'm speechless. I mean, this is just so, this is the trash that, for the older listeners, this is when you guys rag on millennials or Gen Y or anyone our age or younger, this is what you, this is the world you expect us to grow up in. You expect to be able to tell us that we should run our lives like startups and just, you know, live on the knife's edge of just, you know, failure and success. And this is clearly the kind of trash that comes from one of these like weird, growthy internet publications like quartz i think has some good stuff but this is quartz's offshoot quartz z which is just quartz with a y and i'm gonna just give you some of the headlines because i just went on their site this is like their culture slash opinion page when quartz itself is like a i don't know the business like end of the atlantic quartz z some of the headlines Baby, It's Cold Outside isn't about rape, but the song hasn't aged well. Uh. This is the kind of, like, cutting-edge stuff. Round Boys were the best animal internet trend of 2018 uh, with the caption, Thick, with two Cs. Yeah, it's just reproducing, you know, shit that people have already done to death on Twitter. It's just word salad. All the advice they have for us of how to like navigate this bizarre world they've created is this kind of just word salad. It's it's useless. Yeah, and you know, let's tie this into this. Uh, uh, you know, because th- th- I feel like like we can talk a little bit about words right now. And PETA, the People for Ethical Treatment of Animals posted this tweet saying words matter and as our understanding of social justice evolves our language evolves around it here's how to remove speciesism from your daily conversations Uh, so in an age when we must rethink the way we interact with all humans to think of it in terms of businesses and startup uh language and 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 how we will like profit from our every interaction we must also according to PETA be cartoonishly woke and say feed two birds with one scone (laughs) instead of kill two birds with one stone when really you know that the way to remove the violence from that phrase is to pull a Rickyism and say get two birds stoned at once 
Oh yes, uh, Trailer Park uh, Boys. I know the reference. <laughs> I, I this is. I mean, I'm a vegetarian, and I think this list is stupid. <laughs> I mean, okay, okay. But is this isn't satire, right? Like this isn't them like doing like a, a like a like because that part of me was like, oh, this is just like outrage bait. But then I'm like, PETA's not like a content company. They don't. Uh, uh, you know what I mean? I don't think this will spur donations even so what do you what do you think is the (laughs) the point of this because you know this is the kind of straw man thing that you know dennis prager owen benjamin (laughs) types would would use to say that oh well you shouldn't uh i'm sure ben shapiro would look at this and, and absolutely compare it to uh gender pronouns Right. They're going to this is fodder for the kind of people who claim that, you know, liberals are trying to control what you say, you know, the war on Christmas and all these other nonsense things. And I think that PETA is not unaware of that. I think PETA is really kind of a rabble rousing entity more than anything. I'm not sure what their agenda is more than raising awareness of kind of humanity's treatment of animals which on it in a vacuum is a noble goal but i mean PETA, i don't think is really considered one of the great environmental groups there i don't they i think euthanize most of the animals that they rescue i which and they've explained that with like various kind of you know we're mercy killing them and stuff i, I don't know they're not a normal organization they're kind of just rabble rousing i think that they know that this will at least gain traction and get their name out there even though it will become fodder for like you said the prager you or like the ben shapiro types who are going to be like this is the future that liberals want or whatever instead of bring home the bacon bring home the bagels (laughs) instead of take the bull by the horns you're gonna take the flower by the thorns (laughs) but that's not even a good phrase. Like, would you cut? You would cut yourself. Like, with the, when you grab a bull by the horns, you can still, I guess, kind of. Your the idea is you're like controlling it. It's not like stabbing you or like breaking your flesh. Well, maybe you gotta like go around the thorns. You see, you like, you know, they're so small that you just you can't touch the tip. Um, so I don't know. Don't you think that if we are to, if we are to cartoonishly police anti-animal language treat our every interaction as if it is a startup where do you think that leads like our society like do you think all of a sudden let's say everybody adopted both of these in their lives and you know what kind of future do you think that would create We'll run out of water way faster if that occurs. <laughs> I mean, that 12-year mark we have for, like, fixing global warming is going to become more like 10. I mean, you know, I'm not one of these, like, scaremongers of, like, oh, everyone's trying to police language. But people, I think, just put a little too much import in things like this, in what people say. I don't think that visualizing your life as a startup is going to help you out, just like how it doesn't really help startups. And I don't know. I mean, as we move into the pop culture corner, we're going to keep this theme, I think, because I found this bizarre article, and this kind of made me think of what we've been saying about treating every interaction like a like transactional, accepting, I guess, like financial transactions and like currency as 
kind of like the building blocks of our life and our biology. This article is about how there isn't that large of a, like, you know, merchandising frenzy around Hanukkah. And they the, literally the headline, this is in the Washington Post, it's in the business section. It says how Hanukkah gets lost in the holiday retail rush. And it opens with a story of a, a Montana girl who went to college in Minneapolis and is like shocked that there aren't I guess enough decorations or Hanukkah specific gifts available. I mean, right. She's upset about the lack of merchandise is apparently the gist of this article. Number. Okay. Also, can we back up for a second? Like she's coming from the, you know, Jewish like cultural center known as Montana. (laughs) Well, right. I, I think that she is saying that, Oh, well I knew there was no Jewish shit in Montana. So when I moved to a, more Jewish, you know, Cohen Brothers esque town <laughs> in, uh, or you know, Minneapolis, you know, that Midwestern, I guess, urban center where there are like a, a significant amount of Jews. Uh, you know, th- she thought the Jewish community would would have more shit on sale for them. Yeah, I. But uh, so. I live in a big, you know, outside of a big eastern city. I live in, like, outside of D.C. And I would say most of my local targets, or, like, even, like, CVSs and stuff in the city, don't really have very much Hanukkah stuff. And supposedly I live in, you know, this, you know, big Jewish capital. We have a massive historic synagogue in town and everything. I mean, I I don't know. I just, I'm not bothered by it and i'm confused at this idea that like christmas and hanukkah or that hanukkah has to be like as big of a deal financially as like christmas somehow thinking of the holidays as this like one uber capitalist thing that everybody must be a part of like they just assume that jews want that too Yeah, yeah, they want they assume that we want this like vaguely totalitarian force that is, you know, Christmas or like, you know, secular capitalist Christmas, I guess. And I I don't I'm thinking about how, you know, it is Hanukkah currently. Uh I, I'm thinking about how Hanukkah is celebrated or how I celebrated it growing up. Number one, it's it's as we've noticed, it's not the or noted before, it's not the most major Jewish holiday. I mean, our high holidays are in the fall, but the Hanukkah nor nor the gift giving nor is that a significant element. It's it's just not. I think if you're gonna get a gift, you get it around like Rosh Hashanah, but. Either way, like Hanukkah, we uh, yeah, like you said, it's also not a massive aspect of our holidays. Is like this, you know, gift giving extravaganza, which is what children are like guaranteed from day one in like you know most of like U.S. secular society. But I think most of the things I use to celebrate Hanukkah, like the menorah I have is literally like a hand-me-down from my family. It's not, you know, you don't go out and buy a menorah every year, you know? It's not a Christmas tree or something. Oh, uh, yeah, not... I've been using the same one, like, you know, 
like your whole life. Your whole why life, would you? Yeah. Yeah. The one I use, I I've been using since I was like a child. That's why I like it, and I find it so weird. This the um you know the main character in this article, Avital Barnea or however you pronounce her name. Um. I thought it was so odd that she was just like looking for merchandise. And I was like, what your family can't send you a menorah. And she's talking about how she has to like go online to buy a menorah. And that's like, it was just very odd to me. I was like, I don't interact with the, with the world like this, both as a Jewish person, but also maybe just as a human. Like I don't, I'm not like disturbed by the lack of merchandise in places. Obviously like there are certain things that maybe are more important to bring up. I mean, the lack of like, you know, natural hair care products in grocery stores for, you know, black people probably should have gotten more attention. Like that's a genuine, like an actual like product that they need as opposed to like a a menorah. Like what, it's not like a great loss to me that we're, you know, it's hard for me to find, I guess like Jewish retail goods. Yeah, it's not necessary. There's nothing specific to shop for during the Hanukkah season. They All right. Literally in this article, I like interviewed a guy who owns a Judaica and says the exact same thing. I was just like, I just don't. I know it's in the business section, but it's treated as like a lifestyle piece, and I just don't understand why. Yeah, there's uh, not a tradition of spending $500 during like the eight days of Hanukkah. It just doesn't happen, but let's, let's keep it going. Uh, I I wanted to talk about something that I think if you're like a podcast fan, it's this weird thing at the end of every year where every site does their best of the year lists in every category. And you know, that's always, Obviously flawed, whatever. It can also be fun to, you know, whatever. Uh, Rank stuff that you like like that. Whatever. There's nothing wrong with it. But the way that podcasts, I guess, really could benefit from uh, exposure in major outlets, I guess, if they're writing about them, like, critically and not just based on, like, what charts in the top ten But if you look at, like, The New Yorker, if you look at Vulture or Apple's list, and these are just, like, critics picking their favorite, all they pick are are NPR-type, highly produced shows or just, you know, independently highly produced shows. Like, Caliphate was The New York Times' uh, huge podcast about ISIS. They put that in there. Serial, which, like, the third season of Serial, I've not heard a single person tell me was worth listening to. Uh, Trump Inc. is a WNYC show, which, like, it's, you know, these are all the same type of, like, highly produced narrative shows. Think about the kind of shit you and I, Sam, listen to every week. Um, Name, uh, name, like, three, let's each name, like, three off the bat that we listen to every week that are kind of just produced by independent people. I can think of uh, Citations Needed. Big which time. is a gr- a great show about like PR and the media and uh, just general, I guess, left wing critique of the uh, modern media landscape. There's your Kickstarter sucks, which is a great uh, podcast uh, for uh, if you just like to hear about the weirdest fucking products and terrible uh, business ideas uh, from two of the funniest people on the internet, and then. Um, 
the dollop which is uh dave anthony and gareth reynolds who are great comedians they do uh history shows and like these are not shows that are like scripted out to a t and edited to a t like it just feels more like real whereas yeah i don't know it, it does feel like you are reviewing 10 percent of the medium in these year-end lists okay this list is absurdly it's, it's a huge bummer everything is true crime or isis or trump it, it's the most like it, everything's a downer you named three podcasts that are very not i mean citations needed is definitely serious but it is levity in all three of them not only are they made by people they're also like fun to listen to i mean would it have killed the new yorker to put a single fucking like comedy podcast on their list i mean i don't know some of the podcasts that i want to shout out definitely the district sentinel is one that's based in dc it's just two guys both named sam and i'm I'm not biased because they're named sam but either way they just put together a great show great recap of congressional news and uh you know stuff going on in the agencies dc news their slogan is you know they're in dc so you don't have to be and with these shows with these shows that are made by people who are just average dudes looking to you know their end goal is just to create a good show for you they you when you support them on patreon you wind up getting a lot of like good stuff i mean the sentinel boys wind up pushing out a lot of media they have four shows a week uh i'm sorry actually five shows a week and you wind up getting like a zine every two weeks that they write out and and they have publications on their website i mean there's a lot that they give out and they put a lot of effort into it and they really care about the way you respond well, Sam, I don't know. It's not a seven-episode thing about, like, Trump's golf, like, you know what I'm saying? Yeah, and, you know, the other thing with these Patreon shows is you don't have to, like, listen to a fucking million ads about Blue Apron or, like, Stamps.com or any of that other, like, it's hacky to make fun of these ads, but God fucking damn it. Thank God for the skip 30 seconds ahead button. <laughs> like, it's really, it's a, it's a lifesaver. Yeah, and uh, why don't you shout out a, a couple more shows? Uh, for sure, yeah, I've got plenty more I could shout out. I mean, definitely another one that I support and have supported for a while is Street Fight Radio. They're amazingly funny to just like anarchist dads from Columbus, Ohio. They give you even more than Sentinel Boys if you wind up subscribing. I mean, until recently, they were shipping, you know, like herbal supplements that were like Kratom, which is great. They've been, um, you know, putting out just so much video content recently. They do shows where they talk over Shark Tank and uh, undercover bosses. And to be honest, more than any other show, they inspired us to like start our own show. Yeah, they have a very kind of awesome like punk DIY attitude and they never like pretend to know everything, which I think is also another ethos of our shows that we're not, you know, we're not fucking PhDs here. We're not we we have our areas of expertise. We have our things that are da we dabble in, but we want to present kind of like a average working class perspective on these things. So the last show I want to shout out that is you know, I'm going to stick to ones that kind of have done their own thing. And this is one I know Dan likes a lot as well, which is Last Podcast on the left. Now, uh, I, I will say they are uh, enormously successful. I think they're basically on the 
the success level of Chapo Trap House in terms of like th- they have uh, an enormous uh, support network and live touring. Uh, like th- those, uh, I have a lot of respect for how they've actually made a, like a, a living out of this. Right, and they've like built their own network to the point that they like produce other shows, and they've created this like whole ecosystem. But it's all still kind of like this DIY thing. Um, they do do ads, but they also have a Patreon for support, and they just do great, you know, un- like re- meticulously researched kind of shows about. I guess occult topics or anything from like alien visitations to the U to the earth from, you know, that to, I guess the Donner party was a very memorable episode, historical events. I mean, Dan, what were some of your favorite things they've covered? Well, the assassination of John Lennon was a two part episode that like blew my mind. I didn't know John Lennon would like, sit around the table and just talk to Yoko thinking he was going to be assassinated. Like there's so much like crazy uh, sort of occult uh, angles on historical events that you didn't even like think about. And they also, I mean, just they, the guys on the show have great chemistry, but they also really kind of make an effort to explore the pathos of all the characters, even the kind of, I guess, antagonists in the show. Henry Zabrowski literally said he would eat human meat, which I respect <laughs> so much. Yeah, they're all pretty down with like the Satanism and all the funny things that they talk about. But I don't know. It's just when we think about the podcast we like and that we look at these lists of, you know, what we're supposed to like, it's all this like fucking NPR. It's been a minute with Sam Sanders. You know, it's ne- it's never anything that like I guess it's always the most fucking highbrow or the most... They don't challenge the the um, mainstream establishment narrative. Uh, certainly, I, I used to listen to Sam Sanders' show, and then I was just like, God, it's like listening to, like, uh, you know, a wet sponge. It's just there's, no, there's nothing... There's, I, like, I, I used to be, like, a pretty big, like, NPR uh, listener... And then I found this world of like left wing podcasts. I guess like Chapo Trap House was the window to that. And God, like it's so much more fucking interesting. Like if you're listening to us and you're and you're like thinking of dipping your toe into a little more like DIY or you know just these sort of shows that have more interesting opinions. Um, again, uh, Street Fight Radio. Uh, Michael and Us, one of my personal favorite shows that I support on Patreon, uh, where they just uh, started out by going through every Michael Moore movie, and now basically it's just a podcast about like political cinema from the 2000s. Right. Man, there's one show that I also want to mention that I also support on Patreon, and they've only recently had a Patreon, and this is called the show is called This Is Hell, and it's like a radio show that's been operating out of Chicago for 21 years, and they've had the list of people they've interviewed is fucking unreal. I feel like This Is Hell is like this incredible relic of the kind of what am I the like anti WTO like anti globalization kind of radicalism that was stamped out by the Bush administration once nine eleven happened and you know kind of fell apart uh, you know pre Occupy Wall Street the sort of stuff that like 
I think was a little more coherent. And I don't know. At the end of the day, it's there. That show has been on for 21 years. You know, Chuck Mertz, the host, the bitter, blind, gap tooth host, whatever, is uh, so he's so learned and cares so much and does these incredibly in depth interview questions. Also, he's a brilliant broadcast, but as a broadcaster, like uh, coming from that world, like he is so good. Yeah, and he does these four-hour shows that are just interviews wall-to-wall every week, and he's been doing it for literally decades. And the fact that, like, someone who works that hard and is – he's I mean, he's mainly, I think, supported by his girlfriend and the meager Patreon, you know, benefits. He doesn't make any money otherwise, and he, I think, is disabled. And the fact that, like, people w- would rather give, like, all their time, money, and attention to not just, like, these kind of podcasts we've talked about, these, like, basic, you know, true crime podcast but now just every fucking celebrity like like ashley graham has a podcast like the whole point of this medium i think for a while was to like give up and coming artists like this voice that is kind of hard to that other people were ignoring and now that like it's just become the mainstream it's really kind of depressing that shows like this is hell that have been going for so long are still going to languish in obscurity Yes, I agree with you 100%. I mean, like, Logan Paul pivoted to podcasting. I mean, that's... <laughs> I, I mean, you know, I think that says a lot that he thought he could uh, do more uh, than YouTube. Um, but I will say I have enjoyed Conan's new podcast. Uh, so there's one example among a thousand, like, boils... Right, and it's not to say that like a podcast that has kind of like what corporate money or some you know independent funding or does a lot of ads is, can't be a good podcast. It's just like it's kind of depressing when all this attention has all of a sudden shifted to kind of just the most basic like uh, you know easy choices for these lists or as you were saying. Yeah, so I don't know. I just uh, again uh, you know support more independent people don't support like the mcdonald's and you know barnes and noble of podcastings uh shows you know this is it's it's uh it's much more interesting on our on our side yeah so sam and i have been watching a shit ton of king of the hill it's a cultural moment now right i mean we we have uh fell in love with it once again because it is finally streaming on hulu uh it was on netflix for years that's where i first got into it in college but you know they uh they spent too much money a uh, hundred million dollars to license friends because uh some tweets were said but um hulu has been uh gracious enough to uh stream king of the hill so I'd like Sam to discuss his theories on where the characters from King of the Hill would fall in today's landscape. Right. So King of the Hill, I've been noticing, is kind of a relic of a more innocent time. This show started in, like, the, I want to say, like, the late 90s and then carried mostly in, like, the 2000s was when it was, you know, on TV and new episodes were coming out. And there were a lot of seasons to it. It was on for a while. But... I think the main characters would be somewhere different in 2018. I mean, so we know that the main character is Hank Hill, propane salesman. And let's just say the setting obviously is Texas. This is red state uh, all the way. 
and it's also a suburban Texas town. It's like out. It, it, he's very, you know, skeptical of Dallas and like North Texas and the cities. I mean, he's a proud kind of like suburban autocrat in a way, and that sort of is like played out in the events of the show. His right. Wife- it's it's like there's nothing more important and satisfying than his lawn. Right, then they're just like the most average American suburban like picket fence sort of shit. Um, but with his like kind of ma- he has like a masculinity that's like derived from you know knowing the right tool to use for a situation and having like uh, you know these American values, I guess this kind of idea. And and he's this is constantly under threat by you know the forces of kind of like social liberalism that are surrounding him. And I think Hank in the end is kind of like forced to realize his more liberal side over time. And that's why I think Hank today would is literally the mythical never Trumper. If he was in 2016, 2018, uh. he would literally be the person who I guess everyone is all the Democrats are trying to pick up, you know, Chuck Schumer famously saying that, you know, for every, you know, one, you know, working class voter we lose, we'll pick up two Republicans in the suburbs. Like that was a, I'm paraphrasing, but that was a famous line of reasoning that he used to propel Hillary Clinton to failure. And I think Hank, because he's literally a fantasy is this person. He, we've seen Hank, I think, he didn't vote for George W. Bush because his handshake was too limp. Like there are moments where the conformity that Hank is kind of sworn to. I mean, Hank's dad is the, you know, fucking rabid World War II veteran who's constantly screaming at him. I mean, he's not authoritarian. He's more like totalitarian. Yeah, we watched a bit of the cotton episodes uh, after John McCain died. <laughs> right. <laughs> he's a great kind of uh He's kind of a funny way. The greatest gener- generation is almost always remembered as in these like extremely reverent tones. And Cotton Hill and his like kind of racist and like uh, you know warmongering psychosis is a funny counterpoint that you don't see often in this kind of media. But either way, Hank is like in so deep in like these Texas right wing circles, but he's not as like wacko as Dale, his neighbor who, you know, owns plenty of guns and is in the gun club and like high, you know, is in the basement constantly like researching conspiracy theories. And he's definitely like not as far right, but he, I think because he is, he comes to his conservative his conservatism from this place of being moral he's literally like what david brooks wants he's like what david brooks imagines like the soul of america should be which is fitting because hank as we've said doesn't exist <laughs> now your darkest prediction is for peggy hill yes sadly folks peggy hill would absolutely no doubt in my mind be a complete like QAnon whack job. She in would be a. She would be in the Facebook groups posting. Absolutely, and the reason that this was this was recently criticized, and I think the reason that I can see Peggy falling to this is because I think Hank, like the mythical Never Trumper, in a way would kind of tolerate the wacky QAnon stuff more than he would tolerate if Hillary Clinton became like a donut liberal or something, you know, which is the kind of the like 
like the counterpart to the QAnon people are the people who think that Mueller is about to like put Donald Trump in a chokehold and like read him his rights or something. I mean, they're definitely kind of birds of a feather. And I think it's so funny that like just Peggy Hill would absolutely be in, like you said, the Facebook group. She's the right demographic and she's kind of this person who is struggling to realize that she's ordinary and she has always wanted to be extraordinary. And those kinds of people are very susceptible to conspiracy theories because it leads them to something to believe in something larger than themselves. And which is something that they were kind of inclined to do anyway. Do you think anyone on the show would be a supporter of the left? Uh, Bobby would absolutely be a Bernie bro. Yeah. I, I think that's safe to say. Uh, yeah. Can you do Hank Hill saying Beto O'Rourke? I would never shake hands with Beto O'Rourke. <laughs> I refuse to learn how to pronounce the name. We've been saying different ones this this whole name just because I'm being contrarian. Like, if you say Beto, I'm saying Beto. If someone said Beto, I would say, like, Bodo. I, I, I'm not fucking with that dude. Any other final thoughts on King of the Hill? For now. I mean, King of the Hill is just great. It's such a great deconstruction of masculinity. I mean, I used to think it was like going to be a dumb like Bubba show, I guess, because I judged it. And I also was probably like, you know, eight or nine years old when this shit came out. I was also a bit of a Simpsons purist at the time. Yeah, I my family watched The Simpsons. And I think my family being like New Jersey coastal liberals probably thought that King of the Hill was like dumb or for the you know it wasn't for them which is kind of interesting also in this you know discussion of like the cultural zeitgeist of you know trump's america absolutely um all right let's move on from hank hill to story time uh sam you have a quick one you want to share here involving uh some well, this is what happens when you hang out with the middle-aged people. <laughs> so this takes place in one of the one of the best places in New Orleans, one of the most magical corners. It's I took you there when you visited Dan. It's the Maple Leaf. Ah, uh, okay. Yeah, when you were there, there was a massive crawfish boil and just good music. It's a wonderful bar in like <laughs> you actually did get extremely sick from that crawfish. Well, yeah, but it was a it was a good kind of sick because my body has accustomed to eating fucking rabbit food in D.C. where you know there's nothing good to eat, so I just end up not eating anything. In New Orleans, I could eat a ton of food, and it's all extremely rich. And I went back, and I was like, oh, the food tastes good, so I'll be able to eat a ton of it. And yeah, folks, it didn't turn out great. But either way, the Maple Leaf is like a very mysterious place. In the back of the Maple Leaf, it's that's where people go out to like smoke cigarettes or whatever they brought with them. And there's like lots of neon lighting. New Orleans is a very dark city. I don't know how to explain this. Like it's like when it's dark out, you know, you get a lot of. There's a very strong twilight effect. There's a kind of you distances seem larger. Your spatial sense gets kind of thrown off. Uh, it becomes jarring to see places that you only saw at night during the day because you can make sense of them frequently, especially like bars that you only go to at night become these kind of like shapeless places. And fucking my friend, uh, we're going to call him the Dark Star because it's literally his name. You can take 
from that what it mean what you want i mean I, I don't know how much what much more i can say about the dark star he's one of my friends he's a good guy he's becoming a dentist but his father and his whole family and him share this obsession with like jam bands and like funk music and the maple leaf has a lot of funk acts like new orleans ha- is known for its funk scene and that's what was playing this night and of course so not only is my friend dark star there his father is there and his father is always getting me into these kinds of situations. And the one I'm going to relate to you is so irritating. The guy, there is this one, there's always one person at every show who's kind of screaming and like, you know, there's the, the not quite a heckler, but someone who's like very happy to be there. Yeah, the too drunk person who's too into it. Right. And this is exactly what this lady is, this woman who is going to become important later. She the the name of the artist playing is this guy Billy Ioso. He's wonderful. You'd love him, Dan. He plays a ton of like Grateful Dead covers. And uh this whole evening, I guess it's his it was his birthday concert. So this lady's screaming like, "You happy birthday, Billy!" Like at every, you know, juncture, she's just you know, trying to get as much attention as possible. Um, and of course she's, she's like a, like a middle-aged woman. She's not a suitable mate for me, but like dark stars father decides that he wants to get me into another one of his weird situations. So we're sitting outside and out of nowhere, he tells this woman just like who came over to our table unsolicited to, you know, talk to whomever. I mean, you know, a bunch of college kids and like one, one like dad, I don't know what, what attracted her to our table, but either way, this Dark Star's dad just very irresponsibly says, you know, it's this guy's birthday and points at me. So, and I I immediately go like, this is a really bad idea. And I was right because this woman literally came over unsolicited and just like stuck her tongue down my throat. Like she was like, trying to i guess kiss me in like a sultry way but i was i like recoiled i clamped my mouth shut and i was i was just so disgusted because it was just this random woman who had been like screaming the whole night the only thing i could smell on her was just like complete alcohol and the fucking dark star's dad is just laughing at me this is like a grown man who got me into this situation i was very furious he's a good guy but i was not happy with him at this time although i'm sure he did not necessarily see this coming well there you have it folks new orleans is a land of sin yeah that's just like a I mean, that came back to me recently because I spent time with the family at their leftovers party, and they're wonderful. If they're listening, then, you know, I love them, and I harbor no ill will. But I will always remember this. It was very uncomfortable and bizarre. Well, that's the plunge, ladies and gentlemen. Let's close with a song from, uh, what was that band you just mentioned? From Billy Ayuso. There we go. It was his birthday uh, that day, and uh, we will celebrate it right now. Soundtrack of me being, like, violated. (laughs) Jesus. Follow The Plunge at plunge underscore podcast. Uh, Subscribe. Please leave us a rating and review on... on iTunes and listen on Stitcher, Google Podcasts, SoundCloud, wherever the fuck, and uh, tell your friends and 
your frenemies. And please remember to uh, follow Sam and I as well. I'm at Spaventacular, S-P-A-V-E-N-T-A-C-U-L-A-R on Twitter. And Sam is at where? At Wagstank, W-A-G-S-T-A-N-K. The username I refuse to change. Folks, we're going to leave you with that song and we hope that you will join us again but you know first things first you will you must treat your life like a startup and work yourself to the point where you know you will achieve startup greatness and don't forget to join me as I protest my local local target for not having an adequate menorah selection. And uh, I would one more time like to give my sympathies to George W. Bush, who is now an orphan. Well, George W. Bush will always have the ghosts of the like hundreds of thousands of Iraqis to keep him company. And that'll do it for us. Goodbye. Slowly lifts away.